Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Amanda Hirsch from the Not Skinny But Not Fat podcast. You might know me from Not Skinny But Not Fat on Instagram, where I spend my time talking about reality TV, celebrities, everything happening, and pop culture every Tuesday, okay? I also talk to some of our favorite celebs and reality TV stars. We talk about what's going on. Tune in every Tuesday and just feel like you're talking with your best friends in your living room. I'm Caroline Stanbury, star of The Real Housewives of Dubai. I'm remarried and living my best life ever. See, there's so much life after divorce. I'm starting my new chapter unapologetically. I'm bringing real stories, real life, real talk on all things that aren't said between each other, society, the sheets, and everything in the middle. And lucky me, you'll be joining me on the journey. Listen to all new episodes every Wednesday. So buckle up. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce Not Dead. And today I'm super excited after reading everything about this young girl. Alexis Haynes is here. She's only 30 years old and she's already achieved so much in her life. She's been on a reality show, Pretty Wild. She's an influencer podcaster with Dear Media also on recovering from reality and mental health advocate. Okay, so you were married for over 11 years, and you're currently legally separated. We've just been talking about this before, and you have two daughters, nine and six. First of all, welcome, Alexis, and well done you for doing so much in such a short period of time anyway, regardless of ever, anything, and having such a successful marriage at such a young age. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. I think what struck me is I'm just looking at everything else, on top of everything, and it's hard enough being married, bringing up children, and I don't know the time. You're also 11 years clean. You were a Xanax, heroin, oxycodone, alcohol addict. I mean, that's pretty hardcore for anyone. For 11 years. So what were you, like 19? I got sober when I was 19, yeah. I mean, unbelievable. So how yeah. does someone so young fall into, I mean, that is quite a list, Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I started using substances when I was 12 and my addiction got progressively worse. I always say addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's usually a result of environmental factors, the environment that you grew up in and, you know, of course, deep-rooted trauma. And so for me, I grew up in a really dysfunctional household. My parents separated when I was three years old. My dad was a really bad alcoholic who had severe mental health issues. 
And my mom dealt with addiction and on and off throughout my childhood. And, you know, I began enduring a lot of sexual abuse when I was four. That went on for three and a half years. And it was at the hands of a family member who was 10 years older than me. And then that sexual abuse continued with babysitters and girlfriends of my dad's and, and things of that nature. So I had a lot of early childhood trauma and endured every form of abuse. And I didn't have an outlet on how to deal with that. I think both of my parents were pretty checked out. And so what ended up transpiring was I was prescribed medication. And I will say before that prescribed medication, I was already already kind of trying substances here and there, smoking cigarettes from my parents' purses, you know, things like that, and sneaking beers from my friend's garages and and doing things like that. But it wasn't really until I was introduced to pain medication that I realized, wow, these pills take away not only my physical pain, but also my emotional pain as well. And so I remember that first time that I took an opiate It was like that warm, comforting hug that I needed from my parents all along that I never got. And it was off to the races for me. And I began using more and more frequently at higher and higher amounts until the pain pills no longer worked. I built such a strong tolerance to them. And I started looking for the next best thing, which was heroin and fentanyl. And, you know, my my addiction just went kind of through the roof. And that's why I got sober at 19 at such a young age, because I I knew at that time that if I didn't get sober, I was going to die. And I made the choice to get sober. I mean, I have so many questions right now. Number one is who on earth prescribed a child these kind of medications, which I find mm-hmm. incredible. Number two, were your parents aware of any of this abuse that was going on or they were just so clueless? So the first part of that is children in America are regularly prescribed drugs. I know this is crazy, but as someone who's owned a drug and alcohol treatment center, I'm kind of the the rule, not the exception there. You know, I by a psychiatrist, I was being prescribed Adderall, which is basically legalized methamphetamine from a very young age. And then the pain medication came in because I actually ended up needing emergency surgery. And I was prescribed, I believe it was Percocet. And I took that Percocet and I was just, it was like the second I took it, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I thought the rest of my life, I thought I would probably, you know, die young and just use drugs forever. So, you know, that that was kind of what started that. And then regarding my parents, you know, my parents were both drug addicts. Like my my dad was he worked in the entertainment industry, heavy alcoholic, smoked pot every day, had some issues with cocaine and other substances. And my mom was kind of this like free spirited hippie chick who smoked weed all day and and smoked weed with us. I remember my mom coming into my bedroom when I was like 15 years old in the morning before school with a bong 
for me to hit before I went to class. Like, that's just the environment that I grew up in. So there's no guilt or, I mean, does she realize now what an impact it's had? Yeah. 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 So thankfully, you know, and I really believe that I was kind of birthed into this family to shine a light on the dysfunction so that way everyone else could heal. And when I got sober and really started working with a therapist and working a program, I began setting boundaries with the rest of my family members that eventually kind of not forced them, but encouraged them to get better themselves. And I'm happy to say that my relationship with both of my parents is so much better today. My my dad is no longer violent. He is no longer drinking. My mom really woke up to her dysfunction, to her narcissism and her other mental health issues and started getting treatment herself. My older sister ended up also choosing recovery And my relationship with my little sister has also healed. And so it was kind of like me getting sober at such a young age created this ripple effect in the family that helped everyone else eventually make it to the other side as well. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how impressed I am that you could make such a decision for yourself at such a young age at at 19 to be able to say I've had enough now. And is that when you really met your husband then? Yeah. So I just want to say that it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. Like for me, my addiction was so bad, I kept going to jail and I was facing up to six years in prison for possession of heroin. This when I haven't explained as well, you also got involved with a group of kids that broke into the Hollywood Hills that most people will remember called the Bling Ring, including Orlando Blooms. I think it was Paris Hilton's. And you you went to prison for that. Right. Was that all at the same time? No, it was the timelines are a little bit tricky. (laughs) That was at the tail end of my addiction. And I was involved with the Orlando Bloom burglary. I wasn't involved with any of the other ones. I wasn't privy to the fact that it was Orlando Bloom's home. I did take part in the burglary, though, because I was trying to get money to fuel my addiction. And so I, you know, I, I think people don't really understand with opiate addiction, especially the physical dependence becomes so bad that if you stop using for a couple of hours, we're not talking days or a day, a couple of hours, the physical dependence is so strong that you will become violently ill. And it is one of the most painful and excruciating detox experiences that I've ever had. And I've detoxed a number of times, but opiates definitely take the cake. And so what ended up transpiring was I accepted a plea deal and I went to jail and you know, surprise, surprise, going to jail doesn't keep someone sober or put them on the right path. Unfortunately, in the United States, we don't offer people the right mental health. That's what addiction really is. It's a mental health issue. And we don't give them the resources to turn their lives around in jail. So you basically just sit there until you get let out. And so I got let out at 19 years old and I didn't know what to do. My family was still all addicted to drugs. All we did was use drugs. And so for me, the fact that I even stayed sober for the short period of time after getting out of jail, I think was remarkable. But of course, shortly thereafter, I was back to using because that was my only coping skill. I didn't have any other coping skills to deal with the amount of trauma that I had been storing in my body for 
basically my entire life because as I said, you know, I incurred the trauma starting around age three. So I had been carrying this around for 16 years and I didn't know what to do with it. So I went back to using drugs and I was quickly arrested for possession of heroin and I was facing up to six years in prison And I'm so grateful for the judge. I'll always say his name, Judge Peter Espinoza. You know, this DA was really pushing for me to go to prison. And I went to the judge and in front of the DA said, listen, I'm not a bad person. I just can't stop using drugs. And the using drugs is making me do crazy things. And I really need help. And I'm young and I know that I can turn my life around and I know that I'm ready and I just need a chance. And the DA said, absolutely not. And it was the judge, Judge Espinoza, who really saved my life. And as a result of him doing that, I've been able to help hundreds if not thousands of people over the last decade also get help and so it again with that ripple effect like it's amazing what happens when one person turns their life around but he sentenced me to a year in treatment and I went to treatment for a year and so going back to your question about my husband I started going to these 12-step meetings and at this one meeting I would always see this guy who was he was five years sober and every time he would talk I'd be like wow, like I really want what he's got. Like what he's talking about sounds amazing. Like the inner peace, the calm, you know, not not wishing to shut the door on our past, but like embracing it, moving forward. All of these things that he was saying, I was like, I need more of this. And eventually I built a friendship with him. And a year later we began dating and eventually he became my husband. That's amazing. I love that. I mean, I think you have already seen so much in such a sort of short period of time that, you know, to come out of it and have such a shoulder on, you know, head on your shoulder and bring up your children. I mean, how do you how do you navigate bringing up children with the past that you've had as well? Yeah, it's a lot. You know, I will say this that my kid so my my ex-husband and I own a drug and alcohol treatment center and so my kids have really been raised around that facility and so they know what addiction is they know what alcoholism is they know about the disease they know about how it works they know about mental health it's something that we talk about as a regular you know on a regular basis in our household they've seen us celebrate aa milestones and birthdays and all of that so it's like that's just kind of been like second nature for us in our household regarding my public history my 9 year old i knew this was going to happen you know i had briefly told her that i have a history of working in in a public arena and you know some stuff happened that that was going on during mom's addiction and it's not something that I'm proud of and eventually when you're old enough we'll talk about it okay well she's nine she googled me she you know saw what she saw and she had questions for me and we sat down and we were able to talk about it about how you know when we have a lot of trauma and when we have active addiction and mental health issues going on we can make poor decisions and that I made a decision that affected a lot of people and that it was something that you know I'm gonna have to live with for the rest of my life and I want her to know like the weight of that like this 
I'm going to have to deal with this forever. It's always going to be associated with my name. And so it was an opportunity for us to talk about that, about how like our actions matter and about how we must be mindful of them. And at the same time about how like mistakes also happen. And sometimes we just make poor choices and it doesn't define us and that we get to go and turn our lives around and do something better with it. So you meet at the AA, the, the AA meeting with t- 10 steps. You start dating and you end up together and obviously have your two beautiful daughters. And you end up 11 years together, right? And you never had any setbacks in between. How did the relationship go to have two ex-addicts sort of, you know, did it help you? You you both chose a completely different life away from your families and sort of supporting each other. Or did it ever, did it ever get to a stage where you, you could see that through tough times, maybe you could fall back into it, having somebody else. I'm just interested because it's the two of you in the relationship that have been there before. And I wonder if it's very hard to sort of, you know, marriage is hard enough as it is, as we all know. And we're going to get to the demise of yours or what what was the turning point. But in between, you know, you're both in quite a delicate position to go into a relationship with another, you know, a recovering addict and bring in children and everything else. It's, it's not easy. No, it's not. I always say, you know, self-care is really important. We were talking about that when you came on my podcast, like self-care is huge for me because I don't get that glass of wine at five o'clock, you know, after the kids have done their homework and time for mom to unwind. Like we never got that. And so making sure that you're taking care of yourself is imperative to being able to be a good parent. You know, a lot of people ask me that, like being in a relationship with someone who's also in recovery. And I always say this one, it's better than being in a relationship with someone who's not in recovery. I think alcoholism and addiction is something that consumption of alcohol and substances, especially in the Western world, is so normalized that a lot of people are struggling more than we want to admit. The statistic, I think, is somewhere around like 65% of women say that at some point in their life, they've struggled with overconsumption of alcohol. So it's something that's pretty common that I think a lot of people don't talk about. And it's also true that like everyone has their something, whether they're, you know, an overeater or they work, they're an overworker or what, like everyone has their thing. And what I liked about being in a relationship with someone who is in recovery is that we're both committed to working a program that helps all of those other things. So even though the 12 steps for me was really helpful in stopping my addiction and, you know, my addiction to drugs and alcohol, it also helped me learn how to live and operate in a way that was like healthy and balanced. It taught me how to communicate. It taught me how to, you know, be patient, to be present, all of these things that I think most of us could say we we need help on. So, you know, for us, we focused on our recovery first. You were talking about like that pyramid of how on my podcast about how you have to have these certain things in order and in order to operate. And how I relate to that in my life is that like my recovery has to come above all else. If it doesn't, everything else crumbles and falls apart. And then has to come my relationship with my husband, because if that crumbles, then like my kids are affected, right? And then my kids and then friends and then whatever else. It's like my recovery has to be at the top and then everything else works. So, you know, 
I think Evan and I really, he was super helpful for me. He had five years when I first entered the program. So he already had like a good chunk of time underneath his belt. And for me, he was a big support in my early years of recovery. I mean, I think it's amazing. And I, you know, honestly, to watch you both come out of this, we'll see, see how well you've come out of this. And obviously you still have a good relationship, right? Because you're bringing up the children together. But what exactly happened? I, I read something that you, it comes across that everything's amicable from everything that I, I've read, <laughs> but it seems that it was his decision and not yours. What exactly happened then? Yeah, I haven't really talked about the details publicly just because it was sort of ugly the way that everything transpired. You know, Evan and I, if you would have asked me a year and a half ago if I was in the most solid relationship ever, I would have said yes. I would have said that there's no way that we would ever get a divorce, that we were so committed to each other and to this marriage that there's nothing, you know, like it's impenetrable. Like I really, really believed that. And, you know, it's kind of like that silly saying, like when when you make plans, God laughs. <laughs> it really was like, and I just got like whacked over the head with this. Evan and I decided a couple of years ago that we weren't we started having a conversation around monogamy and and it really came about when i had opened up to him about my sexual identity and coming out initially as bisexual and you know talking about how because i got married so young i wasn't able to like explore my sexuality because I have been in a monogamous relationship for the last decade and I got married when I was 20 years old. And so we started talking about monogamy and initially, I'll just say this, that initially after structuring our relationship, setting rules in place on how this would look and really working around our feelings about insecurity and and about all of the things, we decided to open our marriage. And initially, the framework or the narrative on his end was, listen, I had my fun. We got married when I was 36. I I had plenty of fun years. Why don't you just, you know, explore? And if occasionally I want to see someone else, I will. And we had firm rules in place. I think a lot of people often think that in an open marriage that there can't be cheating. There absolutely can be. You have to, there are rules in place. And if you follow those rules, then that's considered cheating. And what ended up transpiring was it became really kind of apparent to me that this wasn't really about me or me being able to explore my sexuality. It was equally if not more so about him being able to explore his which is totally fine but that was something that I wasn't necessarily prepared for and then something big transpired and that something big really shook the foundation of our relationship and I made requests to go to therapy and to work on it and to close our marriage and those requests were denied, and I was served with papers for legal separation. And I 
wasn't ready to move forward with a divorce necessarily. I had hoped that maybe his mind would change or that he would be open to going to therapy with me. He still isn't. But back then, I, you know, I was hoping that like we'd be able to work this out. And it became pretty clear to me that that wasn't going to be the case. And before I knew it, he had an apartment and he had moved out. And I woke up on my 11 year sober and was like, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to fight for something that this person's not also willing to fight, fight for. Like marriages take two people to, you know, work. And if one of them isn't open to, to doing this work, that's fine, but I'm not staying here. And so I went downstairs into his bedroom. We had been in separate bedrooms for years. He was an awful snorer. I could, I was like, I need my own room. And actually, if I ever got remarried, I would still want my own bedroom because I will say it's like the best thing ever <laughs> having your own space in your house. But, you know, I walked downstairs and I said to him, I, I love you. I hoped for something different. And it's become abundantly clear to me that my wishes are not going to be acknowledged here. And so I'm just letting you know now that I'm planning on responding to your legal separation with filing for divorce. And he just said, okay. And then he moved out and that was it. I mean, mine kind of not ended that way. We were not in an open relationship. <laughs> but what I mean is, you know, he didn't fight either. And I no. think that I think when someone gets to the end, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of warning signs there already. I, you know, I do think you're young. So you obviously wanted to explore your sexual beings together or, you know, even separately and having the open marriage. I, I don't see how that can happen. I've seen it happen with lots of my, you know, I have no judgment towards it at all because I have a lot of gay friends. I have a lot of straight friends. I have a lot of really long term marriages, friends that have tried it. And I watch it like a, a science experiment. Somebody always gets hurt. They just do unfortunately, in those situations. But I understand why you needed to try it or, and why. But I think that it's always, from what I've seen, the beginning of the end. Because you open yourself up emotionally to other people. And, you know, sometimes in life, it's very hard, by the way, to be everything to one person, right? To be his best friend, his lover, the mother of his children. You know, all of his needs can't be met by you, right? Really. It's very, very hard to, to be all of these things. And I think, I think we have to give ourselves a break. And I mean, if someone has given up and it sounds to me like he just gave up at some stage, you know, separate bedrooms, also a difficult one because you do lose that intimacy at the end of the night. And like, it's not, not even about sex, the connection. No, we, no, no, it wasn't like that for us. So even though we slept in separate rooms, we spent every night together in bed watching shows and the intimacy was totally fine. Again, if I would have told, if, if you would have asked me a year plus ago, if I had the perfect marriage, I would have said, absolutely. Like there were no red flags. And I will say this, that like the reason my marriage ended or that either of us walked away wasn't because we had an emotional connection to anybody else. It really wasn't. I think that this was more so kind of of like a midlife crisis type of thing. And just kind of 
compounded like a lot of stress that he was under and that he didn't really have the space or the willingness to add one more thing on his plate, which, you know, unfortunately meant me. You know, at the end of the day, like you asked if it if it was amicable, we are amicable. I'm hurting. I'm hurt. I have challenges with the way that he treats me and speaks to me sometimes, as I'm sure he does when I do. It's a very triggered, like it's still tense right now. We're in the earlier phases of this, right? But at the end of the day, like the man that I married is still the man that I divorced. Like I, I want everyone to understand that. Like it's not like he had some like major change or that he's like a bad person or whatever else. I just think sometimes you're just done. And that's okay. Like you were talking about on my podcast, how like you were kind of just like on the edge of the bed and one foot in and one foot out. And I think sometimes people are just done. And I think that they don't even necessarily realize that they're done until they do, right? And I think that for Evan, maybe that was the case, that he didn't realize that he was done until he was done. I think so. That's what it sounds like to me to be so final because men normally go back and forth. And by the way, he's done you a favor because the back and forth is 10 times more painful. You know, this mm-hmm. is painful, but you, you, you've you got closure and you can move on. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't imagine doing the back and forth thing. No, terrible. No terrible for everyone. But, you know, the, the, the one thing I would say, Alexis, is that, you know, life is long. And, you know, you met as kids, really. And you've had such an experience together and eventually you will find comfort with him, with him again as, as, as your friend, as the father of your children. And what that relationship looks like, it will bring on a whole new relationship for you. And, and it will happen. It just takes time. It always happens. So know that. So that's, that's the, the great thing about divorce in a way. It's like, it's not a death because when you have children, it's not anything else. You will, you'll always be in each other's lives. And I also know people that have like, you know, taken a, a beat and like, grown inside and seen what this taught them and ended up back together. And that happens a a lot more than you think. And you could take a year, you could take two years. And if that's where you want to be, and I think that helps you as well, because, you know, that could be your choice. A new girl that's just grown up and found herself without him because you've spent most of your life with him. And Mm -hmm. you might be a better person. You might have more space for this. And you'll have got into your stride. You'll have understood who you are by yourself. And, and some, maybe that's what this was brought to teach you. And at the end, like my, my sister-in-law always says, I thank, I thank your brother for leaving me because I had to be everything to everyone. He didn't leave her any money. He didn't have anything at the time. You know, like she literally did this, the school runs, the this, the, you know, I mean, absolutely everything cleans the house. Her Instagram makes me want to like die before I've even woken up. I don't know how she does it, but somehow she does it. And she goes, and I thank him so much because I wouldn't be the woman I am today if this hadn't happened to me. And now they're best friends. They're like best friends. They holiday together. They sleep in bed together when they holiday together. It's the weirdest thing. I I don't think I can ever do that. My hope is that when the water's calm is that we can, you know, and I said this to him the other day. I said, I know that you are really adamant right now about not going to therapy. I hope we can get to a point where we can go to therapy and just like clear all of the air. So that way we can work our way into a friendship. And to get to a point where we're able to do the holidays and all of the things together. That that is my goal. Not just for the kids' sake, but because 
I loved this man for 11 years. He spent a third of my life with me and I don't want to lose him as a part of my life. I have no intention or no desire of ever going back to the marriage, but I do want him to be a part of my life because you know what? We were great friends and we were good, good parents together. And I can't imagine doing life without him. I think right now it's just a little bit tricky and challenging. It's a minute. It's a minute. You need a minute. Alexa, this has been unbelievable. I've loved speaking to you. I really believe that you are on the right path. Like, honestly, mark my words, you will be, you will have a great relationship <laughs> with this man. It's just too soon right now for you, for him. Yeah. And it's just such a big part of your life. But I promise you, um, because you've got such a head on your shoulder and you're not, you know, you're, you're not so up and down in your emotions and you're quite stable that will bring you a very, very good, stable relationship for you, for your children and for everything. So thank you. And thank you for sharing your story because it's one hell of a story and you really are quite inspirational for a lot of people and you should be really proud of what you've already achieved. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Divorce Not Dead. Tune in next Wednesday for a new episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear from you. Follow me on social media at, at Caroline Stanbury for all the behind the scene action. 